Page 76 in your journal is where we're going to find ourselves today. Page 76 in your journal. If you're online with us today, can we put our hands together for everybody joining online? All of our first-time guests, it's good to have you today. Like, subscribe, do all the stuff. Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through to 32. You ready to get into scripture today? A lot of ground to cover, a lot of deep territory today. This is after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. How many of you would agree with me? Those are pretty strong words. Follow me. Um, verse 28 is very telling. It says, so leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. Have you ever left everything behind? I think if we're honest, most of us would say yes in different moments of life. But have you ever noticed when we say we left everything behind, it means that we left the stuff that we didn't really care about behind, but we still have some stuff in the truck. Right? Some of you who moved here, moved, moved to Utah, are like, we left everything behind. You're like, well, no, you left the cat you didn't want, and that was a good choice. Um, but you brought some stuff in the car. Come on. You brought some stuff with you. And then interesting how we do that with Jesus. We don't leave everything behind. We follow Jesus, but how many of you would, like me, admit, I brought some stuff into the, into the journey? He wanted all of it. But I, I snuck some on board the ride. And that's what we're going to talk about today. But Levi, leaving everything behind, got up and began to follow him. So Levi hosted a grand banquet for him, Jesus, at his house. And there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were reclining at the table with him. But the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples. They're having a sidebar conversation with Jesus' disciples. And they asked this question, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and, and sinners? And I love Jesus in verse 31 because he overhears what's going on. And so he jumps into the conversation. He says, it's not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Today, as we continue on our series, Tethered, I want to speak to you from the subject, Repentance, the Way of Returning. As we look at the beauty and purpose of repentance in our lives of faith. Will you pray with me just one more time today? Father, we thank you for your word. And now I pray that your word would be seed that would be cast upon the soft soil of our hearts. God, that the birds of the air wouldn't pick it. That the thorns and the thistles wouldn't grow around it. That it wouldn't be seed that falls on rocky or stony places. But rather your word would be seed today that falls upon soft hearts ready to receive it. And in receiving it, I pray that that seed germinates, that it grows roots and it starts to flourish in our lives. God, that your word today would take root and it would grow. It would change us and it would transform us, God. So I thank you for your word. It is truth today. And so we incline our ears. We incline our minds. We incline our hearts. We incline our situations to hear your truth today. May we be transformed by it. In Jesus' mighty name. And the church shouted. Amen. Amen. The day would be October 31st, 1517, the eve of All Saints Day, in a town known as Wittenberg, Germany. And a relatively unknown at the time priest and theologian by the name of Martin Luther would gain both popularity and disdain as he would nail what is known as the 95 Thesis to the front door of the castle church in Wittenberg. 
This would become a historic moment for many reasons. Most notably, this great reformation would give birth to what we now know as the Protestant church. And while there's so much that we could discuss concerning this 16th century reformation, I want to draw our attention to the very first statement that Luther would make in his 95 thesis. He would write this, and I want you to hear this after all of his introductory stuff, he would write this as the first thing that needed to be noted amongst all things. He said, when our Lord and master Jesus Christ said, repent, Matthew chapter four, verse 17, he willed that the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Now, Luther was combating an issue that had arisen within the Catholic church. And that was the creation of indulgences. If you don't know what that is, it, what was taking place is that priests were selling forgiveness If you brought a certain monetary thing to the priest and the priest would absolve you from all of your unrighteousness, would absolve you from your sin and would pardon you and usher forgiveness in. Luther, knowing scripture, said, hey, wait a second, we've gotten off track here, guys. We can't do this. There is no way that you can purchase the forgiveness of Christ. Why? Because the price has already been paid. So nobody listening to him, he decided to nail this thesis to the front door of the very church that was proclaiming that this was possible. It was radical. That's why we call it a reformation. The subject matter and doctrine of repentance is one of the most significant topics within the study of soteriology or the study of salvation as we talked about last week. Unfortunately, it's a topic that has been widely ignored and diminished in the preaching and teaching of our churches. Somewhere along the way, we took the doctrine of repentance and we shoved it in the corner to be ignored. And in doing so, we've lost so much of the beauty of our sacred faith. Dietrich Bonhoeffer would call the preaching of forgiveness without repentance cheap grace. And he would say this because without recognizing one's sin, its effects, and its implications, one cannot fully understand the gift of salvation. This is why Thomas Aquinas would say repentance is the gateway to healing. It is the medicine for the soul's wounds. So let's look at our statement of faith concerning repentance. It's found on page 76 of your journal. It says this. Our, our statement of faith in accordance and connection with historic Orthodox Christianity across generations. And we write, we believe repentance is the commitment to turn away from sin in every area of our lives and to follow Christ, which allows us to receive his redemption and to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Thus, through repentance, we receive forgiveness of sins and appropriate salvation. Amen. Come on, can someone say amen today? Amen. Now, repentance and sanctification, as we talked about, are different in that sanctification is the process of continued change across the life of one who follows Jesus. In contrast, repentance is the act of acknowledging one's sin and breaking course from it. Sanctification is the continued change in one's desires, tastes, proclivities, and affections. Now, listen to me when I say this. Repentance is the necessary recognition that I need forgiveness for the desires, tastes, proclivities, and affections that are not aligned with God's heart and design for our lives. More succinctly, Oswald Chambers writes, Repentance always brings a person to the point of saying, I have sinned. The surest sign that God is at work in his life is when he says that and means it. 
The section of scripture that we just read is very important when it comes to the issue of repentance. And the reason is that Jesus clearly articulates in this moment the purpose of his ministry and his teaching. The declaration that he would make at this party was not a new one, but rather a continuation of his already stated purpose and ministry. Both in Matthew chapter 4 verse 17 and Mark chapter 1 verse 15 would highlight for us in scripture Jesus coming out of the wilderness having been tempted by the devil and he would come out proclaiming something. After this moment where he was able to stand in front of the enemy and say, not by, not by what you say, but by God's word. And I live according only to God's word. He would come out of this moment, starving, having fasted, in a moment of temptation. And this is what he would declare. Repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. So repentance is a central topic of Jesus' preaching and teaching. Hear me when I say this today. It's not a fringe topic. Okay, it's not it's not some weird topic by some weird collection of people who are like, hey, let's find the most obscure thing that we can possibly find in the Bible and make majors on it. No, no, no. this issue of repentance is a core foundational teaching, first and foremost, established by and through Jesus. It was one that he was very vocal about and caused the most incredible amount of upheaval. Why? Why does a why does a topic like this cause so much upheaval? Because it does not matter what century you are in, being told that you sin and you need forgiveness from God is greatly offensive no matter the generation. Right? right. Right? It doesn't matter whether you are a first century follower or a 21st century follower. It's offensive. It doesn't matter whether you are a first century agnostic or a 21st century agnostic. It's still offensive. It doesn't matter whether you are a first century scientist or a 21st century scientist. It's still offensive. It doesn't matter whether you are a first century philosopher or a 21st century philosopher. It's still offensive. It doesn't matter whether you're a first century kid or a 21st century kid. It's still offensive. It doesn't matter whether you're a first century mom or a first century dad or a 21st century mom and a 21st century dad. The idea is still offensive. Why? Because we were humans in the first century and we're humans in the 21st century. And so I, I saw or found one of the probably most succinct and staggering statements I've seen on this issue by one commentator. And he wrote this, listen to this. To sin is man's condition. To pretend that he is not a sinner is man's sin. So let's go back to the text. Let's work it for a moment. So after this, Jesus went out, saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office and said, him, follow me. So leaving everything behind, he got up, began to follow him. And Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. Let's pause here. What we see Levi doing is throwing a party for all of his friends to let them know of the life decision that he had just made to change course in his profession. This was actually a cultural thing that you did. If you were going to change lanes, you would throw a party. Y'all with me? So many of you have done that before, right? Let's talk about the life change situations. If you're pregnant, you're going to throw a party, right? Right? If you're getting married, you're going to throw a party, right? If you're moving, you're going to throw a, a party. Like all of these big life moments, you're going to, you're going to throw a party. If you won the lottery, you're going to throw the party, right? All major life transitions, we highlight them with a party. Even in death, we throw a party, even though it's a somber party, 
but we still host something to let everybody know that there's been a major transition in life. Y'all tracking with me? And this is what Levi did. But now think about what he's doing. He's throwing a party to let everybody know that he's going to follow this man. He's throwing a party with all of his other tax collector friends, everybody of wealth. He's going to invite the Pharisees and the scribes and Jesus is going to show up and his disciples are going to show up. And there he's going to let everybody know, Levi, now think about this situation because it's important. Levi's going to say, hey guys, listen up. Just so we're all aware, I'm leaving the tax game. <laughs> right? And that's good news. Some of you are like, it's about time. But in this cultural moment, you didn't just simply leave the tax game. You didn't just stroll up to the Roman regime and say like, hey guys, just as a heads up, I'm leaving the whole idea of serving you. I'm going to follow this, this uh, vagabond over here who's got a pretty like uh, uh, subcultural message going on. And eventually it's going to get really wild and out in the city. And I'm, I'm going to stop the tax game. But uh, leave my spot open just in case this doesn't work out. That doesn't happen. Levi gave up everything. He cut ties. So now there's a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees noted something. Their scribes were complaining to the disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? These were Levi's people. Tax collectors and sinners. Which, just so we're clear, somebody asked me this after the second, why do, why do we highlight tax co- collectors and sinners? It's because in that cultural moment, they hated tax collectors. They were like the worst people everywhere. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Okay. These were Levi's people. And with the attendance of Jesus and his disciples, listen to this, they were now Jesus' people. Why? Because culturally, who you reclined and ate with Defined who you accepted. So this is why the Pharisees and the scribes are tripped out because they're like, like, wait a second, this doesn't, this doesn't make sense. Levi's going to follow all these people, this person, but this person is sitting with people that we wouldn't sit with and you shouldn't sit with. And this is where many of us stop and we create a false idea of who Jesus was and why he came. So we see in this portion of scripture that Jesus accepted them. He sat at the table with him. He ate with them. But I want you to hear this today, church. There's a massive difference between acceptance and affirmation. But what has happened in our current cultural moment is that these two realities have merged together to form one idea. An idea that's entirely inaccurate concerning Jesus and his mandate. Because notice, if we keep on reading, Jesus replied to him, It is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now this statement, it's, it's Jesus kidney punching both parties. <laughs> to the Pharisees, he let them, he let them come face to face with the reality that they had to reckon with. They believed that they were more righteous than everybody else. And that was a dig. But to everyone else sitting at the table, could you imagine sitting at the table with Jesus in this moment? He declares in front of everybody, just so y'all know, you are sinners in need of repentance. <laughs> How many of you know this is a party happening right now? He agrees with the fact that those whom he was eating with were sinners, but clarifies that his very purpose to to eat with them was to change them, to call them to something. This loving Jesus, this kind Jesus, this accepting Jesus focused on the truth of repentance, and that was a turning from sin. 
So let's look at the word a little bit deeper. According to the New International Dictionary of the New Testament Theology, and I quote, the primary Greek term rendered repentance in English translations of the New Testament is the term metanoia. It means to change. It's found 24 times in its verbal form, meaning to repent. And then it's used in other forms uh, 34 times and even deeper terms six more times. In other words, we see that the New Testament as a whole, and especially the Gospels, had a focused attention on this idea to repent. Right. To change direction in order to return to an original state that was better than the one someone found themselves in. Everybody shout to turn. Everybody turn to your neighbor and say repent. (laughs) I got quiet. Everybody turn back. Don't talk to me that way. Now, let's be honest in church today. For some of us, repentance quickly draws us to that person standing outside of the of the concert or of the, of the show we just went to or the, or the monster truck rally or whatever it is that you went to. You know the person with the sign that says, repent or perish. But that's not the image that God has for us to see. That's actually not what the, that's not the picture that the Bible presents to us. And, and I would actually say to us today, just as a caution, that's not how we win people to Jesus. Let's look at what some of the scripture says. Second Peter chapter three, verses eight to nine. Watch this. Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. Those who are uh, with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promises. Some understand delay, but listen to this. Oh, this is so beautiful, but he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. It means there's still people that God's trying to reach. Why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Because there's still people who need to hear the gospel. Come on. Why hasn't Jesus come back? Because there's still another person that he wants to reach. There's another person that he wants to get a hold of. There's another, there's another kiddo out there that God wants to reach unequivocally. There's another one of us in this room today that upon hearing the gospel truth that you're hearing today is going to decide like Levi, I want to follow Jesus. Someone shout repent. Watch what else it says. Romans chapter two, verse four, Paul, the apostle writing, he says, now, do you think anyone of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that it's God's kindness? This is what is intended to lead you to repentance. But here's the problem that we've, the, the, the backwards theology that we've created is that we simply believe in God's kindness but not in its leading to repentance. God's kindness is wooing you and I. Can I just tell you that I remember when Jesus sat at my table. I was a punk. Some of you are like, ah, still. (laughs) I remember when Jesus sat at my table when I was caught up in drugs. I remember when Jesus sat at my table when I was caught up in partying. Come on, come on. I remember when Jesus sat at my table when I was a prodigal son. 
I remember when Jesus sat at my table when I was chasing girls. I remember when Jesus sat at my table and I was chasing popularity. I remember when Jesus sat at my table and I was broken and destitute. I remember when Jesus sat at my table when I was doubting. I remember when Jesus sat at my table when I was confused. I remember when Jesus gave kindness to me and it was in his kindness that all of a sudden I realized there is something greater for me. And so repentance wasn't this grand evil that I had to work through in my Christianity. Repentance was this place that I came to that realized that I've got a creator who has made me for so much more than my decisions are making for me right now. And so what did I do? I repented. And it changed me. And these are just a few of the many pieces of scripture that highlight God's goodness and kindness. His sitting with us. And this is what draws us to repentance. His kindness and his goodness and his graciousness have a purpose, church. And here it is. It's to move us on to the way of returning. I'm going to tell you right now that the spirit of God is moving in this room right now. He's got his arms wrapped around some of you right now. He's healing you. He's changing you. He's bringing clarity to your mind. Now, Theologian William Shedd remarks, repentance is turning to God as the chief end of existence and away from the creature as the chief end. Now, what we see from all of this is that repentance is primarily vertical. Okay? It's a salvation-oriented issue between us and God. It is the acknowledgement between us and Jesus that we require his forgiveness. And, and the acknowledgement produces a turning back to him. But then here's another thing that we, that we see through Scripture, is that repentance is secondarily horizontal. Repentance is a people thing as well. I find it fascinating when Christians shout from the rooftops that we want to change the world, but we are offended at the idea of forgiveness. I find it fascinating when Christians shout from the rooftops of Facebook and Instagram how we want to change the world, but some of us are actually offended right now about the idea of repentance. Wow. Wow. Come on, Pastor. Zacchaeus, Luke chapter 17, was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. So Zacchaeus climbed into a sycamore tree. If it would be Jesus, he could see. How many of you old school church people in here? Yeah, come on, right here. Y'all remember this story? Zacchaeus was a man. He'd climbed into a tree. The crowds were all around Jesus and to the point where he couldn't see Jesus. So he climbs up into this tree and Jesus catches him and says, hey, Zacchaeus, you come down from there. And so he has this conversation with Zacchaeus and there's this amazing moment where Zacchaeus says to him, and I read, look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. And this is what Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. Jesus told him, because he too is a son of Abraham, for the son of man has come to seek and to save the lost. Now, it would be really easy to interpret this piece of scripture as like, see, Zacchaeus purchased his salvation. No, 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 no. You would be wrong. And looking at this piece of scripture, and as we, as we understand it, Zacchaeus didn't purchase anything. Zacchaeus responded to the forgiveness that had already taken place in through Jesus. What happened? All of a sudden, the repentance that took place in this vertical relationship caused Zacchaeus to say, I want to make sure that I bring restitution to my horizontal relationships. Here's what I'm saying to us, that when we have a vertical relationship with God, 
we will have better horizontal relationships with people. I was listening to somebody, I was up early this morning, listening to one of my friends across the, across the nation who was preaching and he gave some statistics that actually rattled me and I'm going to try to find him and bring him into a message in a couple weeks. But off the top of my head, this is what he was saying. He was talking about the divorce rate. I'm going to specifically talk about marriages in here. I know that we have a lot of singles today, but he was specifically talking about how the divorce rate in churches is just as high as it is in the world. Have you heard that before? Right. We say all, all of these things are happening. And then he started to dig into the statistics and here's what he found. The statistics are speaking about what they call nominal Christians. People with a, with a faith that simply is, I come to church, I listen, I stand in worship, and I leave, and I go back to my secular box. Then he gives the, the, the thing. <laughs> the statistic... <laughs> That marriages, and it was specifically speaking uh, about marriages who would not define themselves as nominal Christians, but as impassioned Christians, were 35% more likely than nominal Christians and the world to have successful marriages. And what they found out in this is that the single identifying fact in this was the fact that there was a degree of humility and repentance taking place vertically and horizontally. Because when you've been arrested by the grace of Jesus, how does it not flow into our relationships? I'm going to be just super transparent and vulnerable today. The the grief that I go through when I know I did not handle my kids the right way. And that only comes because of my vertical relationship first. Not even because I love my kids. I love my kids. Sorry, that was clarifying. (laughs) I really do. I love them, guys. Um... But, but it's, hard, it's hard not to be in a moment of worship when we're singing, oh man, I'm alive. That song today, guys, ruined me. I'm alive because of the precious blood of Jesus. How do I not take what has washed me clean and bring it back to those who are around me? So it's vertical and it's horizontal. And I'm just going to go out on the limb and say this. If your horizontal relationships are an absolute dumpster fire, check your vertical relationship. It changes it. Oh my gosh, I'm staying way too long on this. Okay. Um, Luke 17, 3 to 4. Just let's, more scripture. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Some of us just stop there. We like the rebuking part, don't we? And if he repents, forgive him. Some of us are more comfortable with our offense than we are ushering forgiveness. I got this pocket full of offense. So we see vertical, we see horizontal. What is repentance? What is it? Is there a substance to it? I want to argue, yes, that there is a substance to it. Three things really quickly. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these. Write them down. First thing is this, is that repentance is a change of mind. There's a substance to this. When I engage in repentance, it changes the way that I think. Paul would say this, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern. This is in Romans chapter 12, verses one to two, that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. 
How many of you show hands? Like just like come on, big moment. How many of you would say that sounds like a good idea? I want to know. I want to. I want to be able to discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. How many do I got in this room today? That like I want that. And what what does it take to do that? It takes a transforming of the mind. Now the Greek word, the transforming that Paul uses right there, is a related word to the other transforming word, metanoia, which means to turn my mind around. It means to think differently. And so we see that repentance causes us to, to change our mind. I shaved this morning. And when I went to shave, after getting out of the shower, all of the mirrors in our bathroom were fogged up. How many of you have been there before? So in this moment, how many of you know, uh, I'm not going to attack my neck with a razor with a fogged up mirror. So what did I do? I went and grabbed a dry towel. And I went and wiped all the fog off of the mirrors. What was going on? I was renewing that mirror so I could see clearly what it is that I was doing. 17th century theologian John Owen writes this in his work, The Mortification of Sin. There are numerous ways sin uses to divert the mind away from the understanding of the true severity of the guilt of sin. Listen to this. Sin's evil breath fogs up the mind so that it can't make proper judgments about what it's doing. Rationalizations, extenuating circumstances, mixed up desires, promises to reform later, and hope of future forgiveness all play in a role in keeping the mind from truly understanding the magnitude of what we are doing. So Paul says, listen, when you repent, there's a transformation of our minds. When I come before God and I say, God, I need your cleansing work in my mind right now. Remove away the fogginess. I want to be able to see clearly. I want to be able to discern what it is that your will is. I want to be able to discern what is good and perfect about what you have for me. Repentance is a change of mind. Second, repentance is a change of emotion. So not only do I start to think differently, but I start to feel differently. But there's a caveat to this. Watch what Paul writes to the Corinthians in chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 to 10. Watch what he writes. For even if I grieved you with my letter, this is Paul being savage with these, these people. I don't regret it. <laughs> and if I regretted it since I saw the letter grieved you, yet only for a while, I now rejoice. <laughs> Not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to what? Now listen, it gets even deeper. For you were grieved as God willed so that you didn't experience any loss from us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief produces death. This is the difference between grief associated with repentance and guilt and shame simply associated with moral ideology. 
there's a massive difference between I feel guilty and shameful because I did something that was against my ethics. I did something that was against my morals versus I have a heavenly grief that is now inside of me because I am living contrary to the man or woman that God has caused me to be. And through repentance, I realize that this grief drives me to that place to say, God, once again, I stand before you as a fallible human being, but I understand that your grace is sufficient for me. I understand that you have made me new, that I do not have to live in this and I can walk freely in the man that you called me to be. But the problem is that many of us don't like negative or what we deem as negative emotions. We live in a world that teaches us if it's not a happy feeling, then it's not a relevant feeling. And I'm going to say this as, as, as straightforward as I can. One of the greatest reasons that I see lack of change in people's lives is because we simply haven't grieved over the mistake that we made. I'm, a, I'm actually not bothered that I flipped out on my boss. I'm not bothered that I accosted my children. I'm not bothered by that illicit sexual experience I just had. I'm not bothered by the drugs. I'm not bothered by the alcohol. I'm not bothered by the porn. I'm not bothered by the pride. I'm not bothered at the, at my sufficiency issues with money. I'm not bothered. I don't grieve, so I don't need to repent. Y'all see what I'm talking about here? But please get the, get this right. Not guilt, not shame, grief. And so it drives us to repentance. Third thing that repentance does is it's a change of will. So these are the things repentance is. So Paul writes in Romans chapter 13, verse 14, but I, I but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make, per, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Have you ever seen somebody that's being so disciplined that they figure out how to make ways so that the provision of something else doesn't impact them? You ever watch somebody who's eating right go to a party and they have their own little, like, food side hustle going? Have you, have you seen that before? I have friends. They've done this before. They come with, like, their own little lunchbox to a party. And I'm like, I'm about to crush some tacos like last week. And they're like, I'm about to crush some celery. And I'm like, oh, good for you. And then I judge them later, right, while I participate in gluttony over here. What, what are they doing? They're making no provision. For the flesh to gratify its desires. It's amazing how many of us don't take sin seriously. So Paul says, listen, where there's repentance, there's a, there's a will thing that starts to change. What I will, what I desire starts to transform. I don't want certain things anymore. All right. Last set of points. I want to work through... What, what repentance produces in our lives. Very succinctly and as quick as we go. Are you all still with me today? Yeah. Lots of information. I'm trying, to like, I'm trying to like cut the balance here of like making sure we're making things applicable, but at the same time teaching some of these things. You all with me? All right, so what we're going to do is we're going to look at one more section of Scripture. Psalm 51, verses 1 to 12. We're going to break each section down, and then we're going we're gonna to make some points on it. Sound good? Yeah. All right, Psalm 51, verses 1 to 5 is the first section. Be gracious to me, God. This is David speaking. According to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, 
blot out my rebellion, completely wash away my guilt, and cleanse me from my sin. For I am, here's the, here's the main piece I want you to see. For I am conscious of my rebellion. And my sin's always before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you're right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Here's the first point, every shot number one. Repentance produces a comprehensive awareness of self. I want to say this. A comprehensive awareness of self, not a comprehensive awareness of someone else's self. (laughs) This psalm is David recognizing who he really is. Not who he projects, not his title, not his position or his power, who he is. The man David. And he recognizes himself in relationship to God who desires and has designed him to be something else than what he recognizes about himself. David sees there's a discrepancy between the two. This is the greatest self-awareness that any one of us can have in our lives. I am conscious of my rebellion. I know where I'm at and what I've done. Now, this can be a very uncomfortable topic because we live in a world that doesn't like the confrontational nature of looking at oneself. There was a recent study done, and one of the reasons that people actually don't like solitude and silence is because it's in solitude and silence that you have to actually walk around your head and your heart. And the reason that some of us don't walk around our head and our heart because we know that we will not like what we find. So come on, how many of you know what I'm... We, we, we rather go to all the things... Keep us, keep us entertained. Keep it loud so I can't hear my own thoughts. Am I talking to anybody today? Come on, keep me distracted so I don't remember what happened yesterday. This is what we do. And so it can be a very uncomfortable topic. I call it the mirror paradox. We like the mirror only when the reflection looks the way that we want it to. Come on, somebody. (laughs) Only when it supports what I, what I wanted to show. Some of you did it today. You looked in the mirror before you got to church and you're like, that's going to be a good day at church. It's a good mirror day. Come on, show of hands. How many of you had good mirror days before? You're like, this is a good, a four of you. Come on, like, come on. How many of you had good mirror days? To, like, not, maybe not today, but yesterday you were like, yes, the world is right, okay? But how many of you know bad mirror days? When the mirror doesn't reflect things the way that you want to see them. Things are a little bit older today. <laughs> Things are a little bit more looking like you got hit by a bus today. <laughs> right? See, on the bad days, let's call them the ugly days. <laughs> How many of you agree with me? We don't look in the mirror on the ugly days. Yep. So I saw one of the most theologically right memes the other day. And here it is right here. Just take a look at it. <laughs> Come on, how many of you know this this is preaching truth right here? You can't be ugly if you don't look in the mirror. I can't be sinful if I don't look in his word. I can't be sideways if I don't look in his word. So what we're going to do is we're going to create something for ourselves. I like over here. We're going to create mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? And we create ourselves a nice little faith that mirrors back to us my perceived idea of how great I am. Because you can't be ugly 
if you don't look in the mirror. But when you open this thing up, when I look in the, the mirror, I go, man, there's some ugly stuff in me. I need Jesus. I need his forgiveness. I need the life that is found in the blood of Jesus. And so what do I do? This beautiful thing called repent. Second, second section. Psalm 51, 6 through 10. Watch this. I'm going to invite the team up. Surely, listen to these words. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self. And you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create in me, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Here's the second thing repentance does. Write this down as repentance produces a concern for personal purity and renewal. David says, change me, God. What a beautiful declaration, church. Look at the words he uses. Integrity. Wisdom. Purify. Clean. Wash. Joy. Gladness. Renew. Steadfast. Pastor John Tyson of Church in the City in New York says this, that repentance is a radical return to seeking God. I would add to that that it's in seeking God that we experience purity and personal renewal. Renewal occurs when there is a refusal to continue to tolerate personal idolatry and compromise. This is conveyed when David says that he desires integrity in the inner self. Church, we need to become a people of personal purity and renewal. And it happens through repentance. Not perfection. Purity and renewal. Every single day I come back to the same place. I've figured out that as I age, that I'm starting to form weird habits. Anybody with me? So we get into bed. This is what happens. I cuddle with Erica a little bit. She reads a book. And I'm trying to calm the mechanism down. So we did this last night, cuddled. And then I purposely scoot over. And I lay flat on my back. Last night was the first night I realized I'm doing this all the time now. It's weird. But it's when I get flat on my back that I'm looking up. Now, I don't want to make the theological jump that God is up. God is everywhere. We'll figure that out in eternity. But I look up. And underneath my breath, God, if there was any offensive way in me today, if my eyes veered, if my motive was wrong, If I acted in a way that was incongruent with your heart and your desire for my life, and here's, here's the words that come out of my mouth, I repent. Purify me. Cleanse me. 
Wash me white as snow. Now I have full, 100% confidence that I am saved by grace. I made that decision at a youth ministry a long, long time ago. So I don't fear with that. But I don't play around with the reality that sin is crouching at the door. Come on, somebody. I don't play with the fact that there's something there that wants to take me out. And some of us need to get to this realization today that the, that the purpose that is in your life and on your life is so great that the enemy wants you. So it's crouching at the door. And the way that I keep that door shut is on my back just before I close my eyes. And I say, God, give me peace tonight as I sleep. And I rest in the provision of your forgiveness in Jesus' mighty name. That's what I want for us as a church to be a people of personal purity and renewal. Number three, this is the last one, I promise you. (laughs) I've got four more points after that. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Listen to this one. Repentance produces a deeper and more profound sense of God's presence. So in Acts chapter 3, verses 11 to 20, I won't read it for the sake of time, but there's this moment where Peter and John, they're walking about and they come to this place where there's a lame person who's been begging all of his life. And the Bible tells us that Peter and John reach out and they say, listen, silver and gold have we none, but what we do have in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And this man gets up and he walks fully healed. It's a party. There's a commotion. And all of a sudden we find in Acts chapter 3 verse 11 that this man is holding on to Peter and John because the crowd is starting to come around wondering what's going on. So we pick up in verse 16 because Peter's about to say some stuff that's very potent. And he's going to say, by faith in his name, his name has made this man strong, speaking of Jesus, whom you see and know. So the faith that comes through Jesus has given him this perfect health in front of all of you. And now, brothers and sisters, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your leaders also did. In this way, God fulfilled what he said, predicted through all of the prophets that his Messiah would suffer. Therefore, watch what, ha- watch what he says. Therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out. And watch what happens. That seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And I want to submit to us today that when you and I come to places and spaces of repentance in our life, that is where we sense in the greatest measure God's presence and moments of refreshing. Some of us are clouded by confusion. Some of us are jacked up on all kinds of things right now. And I just want to encourage you in this moment, if you would just reach out to the God of the universe, all it simply comes down to is a recognition. Jesus, I need you. And I want to tell you, church, It's in this moment that his presence comes. It's in this moment that you find refreshing. We're looking for refreshment in worship services. But can I tell you the greatest presence of God you will ever feel is not when a band is going. It's when you are talking to the author of everything. You don't need a preacher. God, I stand before you today, not surprised by the fact that you know everything about me, 
here I am. I repent. Come near. May I experience your presence. And may you refresh my soul in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. Come on, bow your head, close your eyes in this moment. Jesus, we worship you. I want to lead us all in two prayers today. The first one's this, prayer of repentance. Maybe you've never done this before. But I just want us to all partake in it. So just say these simple words after me. Jesus, I repent. With grief, I acknowledge I haven't lived according to your will and your purpose. And so here I am. You know me. You see to the core of who I am. And so I stand before you today and I ask you to forgive me. And God, I receive your presence and your peace right now in Jesus' name. With every head bowed and every eye closed, no one looking around. Now, some of us in this room today need to say yes to Jesus. We need to put our faith in him and decide that we want to follow him like Levi. So with every head bowed, every eye closed, no one looking around, would you repeat this prayer after me if that's you today and you're saying, man, I want to follow Jesus. Come on, as loud as you can, everybody say, Jesus, I'm giving you everything. I'm giving you my past. I'm giving you my right now. And I'm putting my future in your hands. Save me, change me, and make me new. And I declare in this moment that I'm going to follow you all the days of my life. Thank you for salvation by your grace. I receive it today in Jesus' mighty name.